0: You are listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no-gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and overall adulting with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by CamWorks, LLC. I know I owe you girls a second episode And I've got the second one and the third one in the works right now. I am currently recovering from what is probably COVID. So I apologize for the amazingly sexy, raspy voice that I've got this week. But I am coming to you with a special segment before any of my new episodes are ready. Because we have to talk. This special segment is called What the Fuck, World, and we have to talk about Ukraine. So I know this is a little outside of my normal wheelhouse, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. I hope I don't have to make many more segments like this, but... A major world event like this that's unprecedented, particularly with economic sanctions, is worth noting on a podcast that talks about personal finance. (coughs) Excuse me if I cough this whole episode, too. So, understanding what's going on in Ukraine today will make more sense if we go back in history a little ways. And guess what? That's my favorite. So I recently got back from Houston. I drove down there, uh, which means a, what is it, 16-hour drive one way. So I had a lot of time in my car to listen to audiobooks. And I have several audiobooks that I have been listening to Regarding U.S. history, world history, the Cold War, U.S. diplomacy, I mean, I'm a nerd. So, I have lots that is very timely that I am going to try to compile together into as high level of an understanding as I possibly can so that you have a better idea of what the heck is happening in Ukraine with Russia and why it matters. So the first things first, I'm going to go back a little ways. The U.S. (coughs) gained its independence from Britain as initial colonies of Britain. England, Britain is not the only place that established colonies, and the U.S. is not the only place that Britain established colonies at. That was kind of the name of the game. So back in the 1400s, you'll remember, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's really when a lot of this started, this imperialist uh, mindset in Europe. So when countries like Portugal, Spain started exploring the Americas. He started to see people from Italy who were finding their ways around. Um, People were looking for better ways to get to India for spices. And they were going around Africa. They were going up past the Middle East. Um, And then they ended up in India, but then they would continue to go toward the Far East and they would get different spices. They would get silk, Um, so there was a lot to be had by exploring the world and they continued to keep moving around the world until they had created these vast empires. That's why you see French presence in Vietnam. That's why you see Portuguese presence in Oman. There were so many places that could be stopped, right? The South Africa became a part of the British Commonwealth. That's that very bottom tip that they would have to sail past before they turned around and went to Madagascar, back north, to head back toward India. So these were all strategic locations that they were going, and most of Europe was still run by monarchs in the 1700s and into the 1800s, with... A major exception there is at the very end of the 18th century, uh, if you guys remember, that would have been the reign of Louis XVI in France. And his wife is Marie Antoinette, the one who said, let the meat cake, which is part of where I got the podcast name from. They were executed and there was a revolution in France in at the very turn of the century. And what happened in the power void following the monarchy falling was a new dictator, Napoleon Bonaparte. And so in the 1800s, Napoleon basically ruled France, similar to a king, but not the king. And other European countries had different pieces going on. I don't have a full world history for you right now. But if we fast forward, the main thing that you need to take away from that period is that all of these countries still had all of this imperialism happening. So they not only wanted to have good relationships with these port cities, they wanted to own those port cities so that they made sure they had somewhere friendly to be, whenever they came through. And so the whole world is basically imperialized by parts of Europe. Enter the 20th century. Things are starting to change. You see the Industrial Revolution. People are starting to move away from the monarchy, or at least become unhappy with the monarchies that remain. And we get to the time in World War I, and one of the last monarchies that's in place leading up to World War I is in Russia. and World War 1 or the Great War as it's known to this day it came about, came and went in the late 1910s after World War 1 those Formerly great empires could no longer afford to maintain peace and stability in these far-reaching areas of the world. And these places include Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, the Pacific. They had to relinquish control to these areas as they focused on rebuilding their own war-torn economies. So as you are probably aware, the 1920s were full of jazz and liquor. Liquor? I barely even know her. See also Chicago on Broadway. And everyone was having a good old time, you know, until the stock market crashed in 1929. We could discuss more details here later uh, about the stock market crash, but while Western European nations were rebuilding starting in the 30s, Germany had been hit particularly hard with sanctions as it was largely blamed for the First World War and was forced to pay reparations to the rest of the world. This is, again, oversimplified, but it's a quick way to sum it up. The world economy descended into the Great Depression in the 1930s, and then by the end of the First World War, A man named Adolf Hitler was really getting his first taste of defeat. You know, Germany had just been humiliated on the world stage. And so as Germany is trying to rebuild and then the rest of the world kind of enters into the Great Depression with Germany, Hitler is starting to gain traction in his own country. he's starting to use propaganda and get people excited to make Germany just, you know, back to something that it was before. And he wanted to reclaim lands that Germany had lost as part of war reparations. And to do that, in March of 1939, Hitler finally invaded Czechoslovakia. I say finally um, because in September of 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, and this invasion of Poland is largely touted as the beginning of the Second World War. But Hitler first threatened, diplomatically agreed not to, and then broke his word regarding the invasion of Czechoslovakia. And quick side note, today there's no such country. That's the last time Czechoslovakia ever ended up as a country on a world map. Now there's the Czech Republic and Slovakia, I think. But anyway, roughly 20 years after Germany lost World War One, it effectively... Began the aggressive annexation campaign that began World War II. And while a generation had passed, Hitler sought to restore Germany to its former glory. It wa- he wanted to make Germany great again. At the end of the First World War, also, another major European power began to struggle. Tsar Nicholas was forced to abdicate the throne. The First World War had cost Russia too much, taxes were too high, and the workers were unhappy and revolting. He abdicated his throne, and then he, his wife Alexandra, and his children were slaughtered as a bloody revolution waged in Russia known as the Bolshevik Revolution and it was led by Vladimir Lenin. After Lenin, I think, died in 1924, Joseph Stalin took over the Communist Party, and he led Russia until his death in 1953. In World War II the alliance between Western European allies and the Soviet Union was a matter of convenience more than it was a matter of ideologies. As Hitler's aims were also on expanding into Russian territories. So Prime Minister Winston Churchill of the UK, President Dwight D. Eisenhower of the US, and Comrade Stalin sometimes known as Vozd, the chief or the boss, of the USSR, became allies in a massive war purely out of convenience. In other words, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Bolshevik Revolution was largely about ideology. Adopting the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx who was a 19th century German philosopher and adopting it to the Russian way of life. Stalin, a voracious party member in Russia, could not have differed in ideology more from his Western allies. When the war ended, the groups sought to seek peace, but they also effectively split Europe into two zones, Eastern and Western Europe. Germany, in part again being punished for being at fault for the Second World War, was split down the middle. Well, split. As was the capital city of Berlin. Everything to the east was annexed into the Soviet governmental ideologies and became part of the massive power known as the USSR. For the next 50 years, a war of ideology raged between the Democratic Republic ideals of the US and the socialist ideals of the USSR. This period of time is known as the Cold War. Now, some may argue that there were no wars actually fought during the Cold War. This is somewhat incorrect. The United States did not enter into any outright war against the USSR during the Cold War. But remember, all those countries that used to be part of the formerly large imperial colonies of Western European empires, those had largely begun to be allowed to govern themselves. And as a a power vacuum emerged in each of those places... The war for ideology raged, and both the United States and the USSR wanted to ensure that the ideology that would be favorable to their way of life, their ideals, and their world aspirations were chosen in each location, enter conflicts like the Korean War in the 1950s. Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s, Afghanistan in the 1980s. This is by no means an exhaustible list, but it's the ones you're probably most familiar with, so we can skip to the good parts. So what? In 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev became the last leader of the Communist Party of the USSR, During that time, the Soviet forces entered Afghanistan to quell an insurgency, or so it thought. But the Communist Party's strict non-religion and its brutal military tactics were no match for the Mujahideen's will and the influx of money, weapons, and training supplied by the CIA. The United States had hoped to bleed Russia dry in the same way Russia had supported the Viet Cong in North Vietnam, effectively dragging the U.S. down in the world's favor and stature. Gorbachev had a unique opportunity when he was younger to travel outside of the USSR and see beyond the so-called Iron Curtain into life in Western Europe. So by the time he took office, Gorbachev had a distinct understanding that the USSR was far behind its Western counterparts in living standards and affluence. And he wanted to change that. He wanted to make the lives of Soviets better. To do so, however, he started to give up some of the strict control that the Kremlin had had over its other Soviet states. He allowed these states to hold elections and in many cases was dismayed to find that the Communist Party was ousted from power almost unanimously. And with the failed Afghani operations already bleeding the country dry, as well as a desire to make improvements to life, by starting improvement projects all over the USSR and the loss of several of its territories to non-party local governments, Gorbachev basically had to give up. So he sat down with Ronald Reagan and based on their talks, effectively agreed to end the Cold War. And in 1991, the USSR broke up for good. At this point, frustrated with his failure to the USSR, others decided to overtake Gorbachev. They did not like what he had done and a new government was set up under Boris Yeltsin. At this time, prominent party leaders began dividing up resources across what was left of the USSR. The outcome of that resource divvy was the Russian oligarchy. In 2000, Boris Yeltsin was succeeded by none other than President, look at my sexy body, Vladimir Putin himself. Putin was in power from 2000 to 2008 and won the election again in 2012 and has been in power ever since. In the 1990s, war raged across the Eastern Bloc of these former USSR states as they worked to fill the power vacuum and established governments that worked best for them. This included conflicts in Yugoslavia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Albania, just to name a few. Here's where things get interesting. From 2001 onward, U.S. focus has been on Afghanistan and Iraq. Our greatest threat as Americans, we've been told, are the holy warrior factions that developed in the wake of the power void left after Russia was ousted from Afghanistan and the radical Islamic terrorism was created in its place. What we weren't looking at anymore was Russia. Gorbachev told Reagan that the Cold War was over. We won. Shit, we rejoiced and spent money like it was nobody's business. Our parents could party in the 90s. Shit was lit. Okay, so the reason I wanted to go all the way back to the World Wars to start us off is this Hitler was young in the First World War, and his country got Emasculated. They got castrated on the world stage, and he plotted and planned for decades before he was able to come back into power and make one last stand. Vladimir Putin did not come out of nowhere. He was young. He was watching Gorbachev dismantle the once great USSR and basically castrate the party and the country on the world stage. Or at least that's how I imagine he would see it, considering that the growth sentiment around Russia at the time was that Stalin was the best USSR leader and Gorbachev was the worst. History is the way countries remember. History is the memory of countries. And though a generation has come and grown up since the USSR effectively lost the Cold War, Mother Russia still remembers. And you can bet the president put me on a horse remembers. And just like what Hitler wanted, Putin has stated that Ukraine, for example, is Russia, has been Russia, and will ever, be, forever be that Russia. Putin has stated he wants to restore Russia to its former glory. Guys, Putin wants to ultimately make Russia, great again. So why is everyone freaking out now? Well, because this isn't the first move that Russia has made on the Ukraine. Nor is it the first move it's made on its other former USSR countries. In 2010 the Ukraine held an election for its president. The presidential results went to Viktor Yanukovych. And this was contested, and many were unconvinced. Yanukovych was a member of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union from 1980 to 1991, and he served in the Party of Regions, which is the pro-Russia party, from 2000 to 2014. In 2004, he was elected president in the Ukraine. But that was overturned because it was seen to have been a rigged election. And there was a revolution that took place at that time. In 2013, the Ukrainian parliament and President Yanukovych were supposed to sign an agreement with the European Union, adding Ukraine into the EU. In a move that surprised and dismayed the Ukrainian people, Yanukovych did not sign the agreement with the EU and instead signed a counter-agreement with Putin. The Ukrainian people were dismayed, and they were outraged, and they took to the streets in what started as a very peaceful protest. This initially peaceful protest of that counter-agreement and not going into the EU, which was started by students, culminated into a 91-day stakeout violent clashes between the Ukrainian special police force, the Berkut, and the protesters in the streets of Kyiv, Hundreds were killed, thousands were injured, and the standoff ended with the ousting of the Ukrainian president and the disbanding of the existing Ukrainian government. Yanukovych was given asylum in Russia by President Putin. The area of the Ukraine, known as Crimea, is a peninsula that separates the Black Sea from the Sea of Azov and is separated from Russian territory by a small strait of water. It's largely separated from the main continental area of both Ukraine and Russia. This section of land is known as a popular tourist destination for its seafront on both sides and its access to cruise ships. Based on the election map from 2010, the pro-Russia party voters, the ones that voted for Yanukovych, they all largely reside in the southern parts of Ukraine which shares a border with Russia. Keep in mind too, that when Ukraine declared its independence from the USSR in 1991, the borders solidified in a way that they had never done before. Many Ukrainians still had family in Russia, still have family in Russia, and many Russians still have family in Ukraine. So it is not necessarily surprising that some people in the Ukraine would be amenable to the old party and the old Russia. Following the Maidan revolution, which is what that 91-day standoff was called, the area of Crimea began to see pro-Russian demonstrations in response to the overflow overthrow of Yanukovych and his pro-Russian government. That being said, and whatever the reasons, Russia decided to invade and annex Crimea into Russia. Based on what the Kremlin said, it was to help Russian nationalists to rejoin their homeland. Ukraine at that time was unable to organize a governmental response as days prior, they had just overthrown their government. So they were unable to hold on to the peninsula and Russia has been in power over that area ever since. In response... President Obama implemented sanctions on Russia in an attempt to deter it from what many in the world saw as the largest land grab since the Cold War. Economic crisis also hit the Ukraine at this time, and the new president Petro Poroshenko seemed to show similar egoistic aims as his predecessor's. In 2015, the US was inundated by campaign politics and shenanigans leading up to the 2016 election. According to a joint report by the CIA, FBI, and NSA, Russia was involved in a campaign to undermine the confidence of Americans in our own electoral system and to elect Donald Trump. Based on the outcome of the election, Russia succeeded. Facebook linked 80,000 publications to the Russian company Internet Research Agency through more than 470 different accounts between January 2015 and August 2017. In that same time frame, there was a total of 50,258 Twitter accounts linked to Russian bots which were responsible for more than 3.8 million tweets, which accounted for 19% of the total tweets related to the 2016 U.S. presidential election. That's one-fifth of the information on Twitter about the U.S. presidential election in 2016. As the former president let us know over many occasions, Donald Trump has strong regard for the Russian president. As far back as June 2013, Trump tweeted, Do you think Putin will be going to the Miss Universe pageant in November in Moscow? If so, will he become my new best friend? As early as October 2013, Trump told Larry King on Aura TV, that Putin has done, quote, a really great job outsmarting our country. And he told David Letterman (coughs) that he's done, quote, a lot of business with the Russians. Coinciding with the misinformation campaign, Trump spent much of the summer of 2015 telling realistically, anyone who would listen, how well he would get along with Putin and how much Putin hated Obama. In 2019, Ukraine elected its current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, a former comedian who ran as an alternative to government as usual with no former political experience. Zelensky was elected in part to combat the widespread corruption the country has faced in its political system. Around the same time Russia was invading Crimea, son of then-Vice President Joe Biden, Hunter, joined the board of Burisma Holdings, a large private Ukrainian gas firm. That same year, the firm's owner, Mikola Zlochevsky, former Ukrainian, Ukrainian Ecology Minister and a political ally of former President Yanukovych, came under investigation for corrupt business dealings. Under Petro, uh, President Petro Poroshenko in 2015, Viktor Shokin was appointed to the role of prosecutor general, taking over the investigation into Zlojevsky and his businesses. In 2016, Shokin was fired amid accusations of his own ineptitude and corruption, in part with pressure from Vice President Biden. This pressure was later construed as a way to protect Hunter from coming under Shokin's scrutiny. This pressure was also later construed as a way to punish Shokin for not looking into Burisma holdings after all, as intended. It should be noted that in May of 2019, Ukraine's new prosecutor general, Yuri Lutsenko, stated that he was aware of no evidence of criminal wrongdoing by Hunter Biden. In August 2018, President Trump signed the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, known as the NDAA, which included $250 million from the Department of Defense to help Ukraine deter Russian advances and purchase weapons. One section of the bill specifically bars any funds from the NDAA going to, quote, any activity that recognizes the sovereignty of the Russian Federation over Crimea, end quote. A Ukrainian news outlet that I'm sure I'll mess up the pronunciation for, Hivlyia, Vailaya, Vailaya, sorry, that Ukrainian news outlet wrote that Giuliani had put pressure on Zelensky's administration more than once by June of 2019 but that he and his team prefer not to align themselves with either US political party Shortly after Zelensky diplomatically requested that President President Trump assist Ukraine encountering the construction of a gas pipeline through the Baltic Sea between Russia and Germany. The issue for which Trump was impeached the first time was surrounding these political points, where Trump requested Zelensky investigate Hunter Biden in return for a face-to-face meeting to discuss these points, including the much-needed military aid which was already promised to the Ukraine by the U.S. Congress via the NDAA. Evidence again surfaced, pointing at Russia for misinformation campaigns leading up to the election in 2020, which, while unsuccessful at securing another Russian-friendly presidential victor, was still quite successful at sowing discord across the U.S., While we were busy looking here at home, Crimea stayed in Russian control and its former glory as a tourist destination had severely diminished in the wake of becoming a Russian territory. In the meantime, the whole world suffered the same fate throughout 2020. COVID-19 was first detected in Russia in late January 2020 and March of 2020 in the Ukraine. Russia implemented an extended lockdown from March to May 2020. No information was found on Ukraine's lockdown situation. In January of 2021, President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared to President Joe Biden to let Ukraine join NATO. As you may remember, during this same time frame, U.S. focus was on the armed mob of U.S. citizens that stormed the Capitol, wanting to hang Vice President Mike Pence and calling out to kill House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, among other Democratic leaders in an effort to stop the confirmation of Joe Biden as president by the Congress. This mob of UF citizens storming the Capitol was encouraged by none other than the politically defeated President Trump based on false allegations that the election was stolen. In fact, as mentioned previously, The only evidence that exists regarding election stealing was Russian interference, which would have served only to secure Trump in a second term. Following his request to join NATO, Zelensky's government froze the assets of their opposition party's leader and the Kremlin's most prominent ally in the Ukraine, a man named Viktor Medvedchuk. Mere months after it was unsuccessful at installing a Kremlin ally in the White House for another four years, Russia began to move troops near Ukraine's border under the guise of training exercises. Over the course of the year, Russia built up 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. Then, on December 17th, the Kremlin issued its demands. One, NATO pull back troops and weapons from Eastern Europe. Two, do not allow Ukraine to join NATO ever. A month later, NATO responded by putting its forces on standby and reinforcing its presence with additional ships and fighter jets. Additionally, addressing the second demand from the Kremlin, President Biden responded to the security demands confirming, quote, an open-door policy to NATO while offering a pragmatic evaluation of the concerns from Moscow. As you might expect, particularly with the outcome that we're sitting on today, Russia was not pleased with this response. Now, enter the last four weeks of our lives, a.k.a. this February. The United States agreed to send troops to NATO ally countries Poland and Romania, but it would not send any troops to Ukraine directly for fear of poking the radioactive bear. NATO allies did warn Russia of a strong economic sanction if Ukraine was attacked. Now, all of this may be the reason, but... It could also be that Putin just didn't get to hear from his favorite side chick on Valentine's Day. But I tell you what, whatever it is, man's in a mood. Because on February 21st, Putin put a televised address out on Russian media stating that the Ukraine government is a puppet government for foreign powers. More likely, it's just no longer a puppet government for the Kremlin. Some reports even state that he used the term Nazis and fascist dictator to describe Zelensky. Putin states that Ukraine is an important part of Russia's history and that he recognizes two regions in Ukraine as completely independent. Then he ordered his troops to enter Ukraine in these regions on what he called a peacekeeping mission. On February 22nd, the next day, NATO allies sanctioned members of the Russian parliament, some of its banks, and other assets in response. Germany also halted the gas pipeline project, the same one that Zelensky had previously asked Trump to help him stop in 2019. Russian-backed separatist leaders asked Russia for help repelling aggression from the Ukrainian army on February 23rd, and Putin authorized a special military operation in Ukraine the next day. These special ops include missile and artillery attacks on major Ukrainian cities, including its capital, Kyiv. By Saturday, February 26th, Western allies announced new sanctions, including restrictions on Russia's central bank and expelling key banks off the main global payment system. Okay, so what does all of this mean? For now seven of Russia's banks can no longer communicate on the global messaging infrastructure known as SWIFT. Some access was left open for other banks to remain, which allows an open path for energy supply payments to continue to be made. This is an important piece to remember because most of Europe gets its energy supply from Russia. And remember, it's only barely March, so they need heat to survive. So far, energy shipments remain spared. But U.S. lawmakers, the ones who are not going to um, feel the freeze of the loss of energy, let's say, U.S. lawmakers are pressuring President Biden to target the energy sector as well. In response to the sanctions, Russia basically panicked. It's been said that Russian oligarchs began fleeing the country. It's known for a fact that the value of the Russian ruble dropped around 25% in one day after sanctions were introduced and was down by nearly 40% total the next the Kremlin made an unprecedented move and refused to open the Russian stock markets at all on Monday morning, and they remain closed. They reasoned that if you cannot trade the stocks, their values cannot fall. Russian citizens are waiting, have been waiting in lines for hours in order to withdraw money from their banks, worried about the value of their savings. And some Russian citizens have chosen instead to spend their money as fast as they possibly can in order to preserve the value of the items purchased rather than in the tanking currency, perhaps in the hope that they'll be able to trade those items in a barter system when their currency becomes worthless. Russia has also banned any of its hard currency from leaving the country. Private companies have also made their own moves. BP is divesting its Russian portfolio, meaning it's completely withdrawing from the country. Exxon is shutting in its oil production in the country at this time. And to make things a little more personal for the Svelts Vlad, his black belt in Taekwondo is being revoked too. The sanctions... Didn't happen in Russia alone. They had a world impact, and the US stock indexes fell today while oil prices rose to their highest level since 2014, preparing for a shortage of supply coming out of Russia. To ease the burden of rising oil prices on global consumers, the US and other major oil consuming nations will release 60 million barrels from their emergency stockpiles. In the meantime, there's still a war waging on the ground. What we know for now is that Kiev still belongs to the Ukrainians. Russia is running up against a food and fuel shortage, which has stalled their advances for the moment. Russian forces have begun pummeling civilian areas on Tuesday, a new tactic that was intended to demoralize Ukrainian resistance. The number of refugees fleeing Ukraine have reached above 600,000, pouring into neighboring countries over the last few days, notably Poland. Men between the years of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country and they are being armed for the resistance against Russia. So why should we care here in the U.S.? For one... This is not the first move that Putin has made in post-Cold War Russia to rebuild the former Soviet Union to its former glory. And it's not the first move it's made on Ukraine. This has been a calculated move that Putin has been planning, plotting, and building toward at least since Trump lost the election in 2020. But it seems that it goes back even as early as his his time during the Obama administration. You'll notice that the timing of when the troops were first deployed was spring of 2021, shortly after Joe Biden was inaugurated. It's pretty sus. Russia is one of the largest superpowers in the world and still has an extensive arsenal of nuclear weapons, which Putin has now put on high alert. Many are concerned that giving in to Russia regarding Ukraine would not be the end of the conflict, merely the beginning. If you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk. The Ukrainian people, particularly its younger generation, have been working to align themselves more with Europe than with Russia over the course of its post-Soviet history. This effort has been opposed by corruption of longtime former USSR Communist Party political elites over the last several years, leading to authoritarian leadership, revolution, and continued efforts to move Ukraine westward. Ideologically speaking, electing Zelensky to office was an attempt to remove corruption and align Ukraine's government with the will of its people. Ukrainians wanted to move to the EU back in 2013, and Ukrainians still want to be included in the EU and NATO today. Doing so will forever diminish the amount of power the Kremlin could exert over the country. By installing friendly regimes, Ukraine can still remain tied to Russia in a way similar to what Gorbachev had been striving toward. In wanting to align itself with Europe and NATO, a trade organization that does not include interests that align with Moscow, Ukraine, though officially declared independent in 1991, is further declaring its independence from Russian world affairs. Without Ukraine, Russia cannot hope to take back any of its other former USSR territories. That being said, there's another piece to this puzzle that's not being watched. Since it voted to abstain from condemning Russia, China showed a break from Moscow, But China also has its eye on its own territorial prize of Taiwan. While the world focuses on Ukraine, we may want to keep our peripheral on China. China has closely followed Moscow's example of communism and China's supreme leader Mao Zedong, even went as far as wanting to impress and be seen by Stalin as his equal. In a way, China is politically a bit like the unloved son of a narcissistic father that tries to get daddy's attention by copying him. China's no fool, though. If daddy is about to get himself arrested and thrown in jail, China is waiting to come visit him in jail, but not get thrown in with him. But keep your eyes peeled there's potential in that direction as well. So what's the takeaway for today? Keep your eyes open, keep watching, and pay attention to where you get your news from. There is some level of, Some news organizations that sound strongly like Russian talking points. Like speeches given directly by Vladimir Putin. These are propaganda campaigns and they are being reiterated here in the U.S. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you give credence to. There's a concept in statistics that if you have a sample of data and most of that data forms a cluster in a certain area, not one item of that piece of data may be 100% correct. But if you see a cluster of data, it's likely that the answer is within the probability of that cluster. If you have a large cluster and one or two outliers, it is strongly, strongly improbable Statistically speaking, for those outliers to represent the overall answer from your sample data, the overall population from the sample. So what that means is if there is one news outlet that is saying one thing and there are 12 others saying another It does not mean that your one news outlet is telling you the truth and the other 12 are conspiring. It is more likely that the 12 others will differ in some ways from each other, but they will be close enough that they create a statistical cluster that they are much more likely to be the truth. Just applying statistics, use your best judgment, stay away from anything that is overly strong rhetoric. I hope this helps. I hope you guys learned a little bit about what's going on and could see some of the parallels that are happening at this time from historical contexts and why some people might be concerned about this turning into a much greater conflict. Ultimately, the main concern here is that Russia won't stop with Ukraine. And if Russia does not stop with Ukraine, it will continue to move forward into countries that are NATO allies, and then other NATO allies will be forced to come to their aid, thus implementing the next Eurasian war. And if China makes its own moves on Taiwan. This Eurasian war will start to grow further. And that is the concern that everyone has right now is that this turns into something much greater than it needs to be. Particularly for the first time since nuclear weapons were developed, pitting two major nuclear powers against one another in armed conflict. It will be the first time. And it's scary. So that's why people are watching Ukraine. That's why people are standing with Ukraine. And that's why even the Swiss have made a calculated risk decision and determined that the risk posed to the economy by implementing the sanctions are outweighed by the risks of not implementing these sanctions and having Russia... Continue with its aggression. So that's why you see all of these countries in Europe coming together. And I hope that helps. Um, if you guys want any more information on this, if you think I've got something wrong, please let me know. You can always email me at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. Short for Let Them Eat, Avo uh, Sorry, at gmail.com. So I am sorry to bring you such crazy news. We will stick to the rivers and the lakes that we're used to with episode two coming up next. We'll be talking about budgeting. We'll be talking about calculating net worth. We'll be talking about needs versus wants and values. And yeah, we're going to have some fun. Budgeting isn't any fun. I basically wrote the whole thing and I don't like it. So I'm going to redirect it a little bit. I hope you guys wind up liking it. But in any case, if you guys want any more of these news segments, Um, Please let me know. I can be more than happy to throw out some what-the-fuck worlds uh, for you guys in the future, too. But this one's a pretty what-the-fuck moment. So, what-the-fuck world? This has been a special episode of Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, what-the-fuck world edition with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by CamWorks, LLC. All sources for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host. That's me. And do not represent the opinions of CamWorks, LLC. Any music used in the stock is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Like and subscribe.